Hey, podcast listeners. Here's the second part of our Urban B episode. Hope you enjoy it. Now I'm recording. Okay. Yeah, so the, the first time, name, the my name is, is Doug Sponsler. I'm a postdoc at Penn State University in the Department of Entomology. I work with Christina Grosinger in the Center for Pollinator Research. And here we are in Old City, Philadelphia. Okay. And we are about to, uh, to do something that I don't think very many people had the opportunity to do. We're going to walk up through four stories of a working chocolate factory. We are going to emerge onto the rooftop and then do some beekeeping. How did you end up doing a bee study in Philadelphia? Well, so I grew up in Philadelphia, and I, I, I uh, have always um, wanted to be an entomologist and have been pursuing that goal for uh, pretty much my whole life since I was a very small child. Um, I did my PhD at Ohio State and, and got into bees there, but what I always wanted to do was to come back and study plants and insects in the place that I grew up and fell in love with nature, which is here in Philadelphia. And uh, it's really the... the, the the theoretical content behind this project that motivates me is, is the idea of urban ecology and how to understand the relationship between human land use in cities and the uh, plants and animals that can coexist in, in cities. And I think that studying plants and pollinators gives you a, a, a really broad um, kind of a swath of, of the ecological relationships in a city that, that connects across trophic levels and that connects across... You know, plants and animals, um, and it connects with people in a really special way too. People tend to like bees, and so it's more accessible to the public. And also, the the, the beekeeping community is a, is a fantastic group of people to work with. They have yeah. a, a vested interest in plant pollinated interactions, and they have uh, a, a lot of expert local knowledge on the topic. So, yeah, the, the the urban ecology of green bottle flies doesn't get people quite as excited. It, it doesn't. No. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I imagine it, it, that's slightly tugging to you just because I see them poly- I see them working my, my milkweed flowers in front of my house all the time. <laughs> yeah, no. But, 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 but it's like you mentioned flies to anybody in the, in the city, and they're like, oh, no. Like, you know, I mean, you, you might as well be doing studies on cockroaches. But it, it's true, like, though, you know, that uh, flies are very much the neglected pollinator guild. Um, <laughs> and you know, there's a whole group of just one, you know, just take the surfid family of, of yeah. flies that are very important pollinators, very diverse. And, um, which end up gobbling up aphids on my yeah as, as larvae they're, they're great my, predators yeah. right but uh, people people will talk about bats as pollinators before flies yeah, like you know they're, yeah. As pollinators before yeah like I mean it's just like you know like flies it's like you know oh no, 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 no. Uh, they're actually quite attractive too I think especially I, the, the surface the green bottle ones you stop and look at them they're really pretty animals um, before I forget what's your name uh, Don Shop. how would you describe your title for this stuff um, so I am the owner of the Philadelphia Bee Company. Okay. What's the, your picture? What's the Philadelphia Bee Company? So um, the Philadelphia Bee Company is a uh, urban apiary operation where we um, actually do, we're sort of split into three separate companies. We do educational outreach, so I'll do speaking engagements. I speak at the flower show every year. I do uh, school assemblies, you know, um, anything from toddler up to, you know, very old um, folks. Sure. and. Uh, and then we do uh, seasonal regional varietal honeys. So depending on what time of year and what part of the city, you get a different type of honey. Ah, so okay. um, varietals, uh, varietal honeys in the traditional sense are usually associated with floral varietal honeys. And so in the city, we don't have any like more. Yeah, where a beekeeper would land, you know, like yeah, you see like an orange bo- blossom or a clover. We yeah. don't have enough of one thing in bloom at a given time. Okay. For the, so we, what, what we produce is a wildflower, but because we can break it down by season and region, you still get... A beautiful gradient of color and taste um, in the, in the honeys that we that we have here, um, and then 
Uh, I, we do removals, so we remove anything that flies and stings. It's kind of tempting. You're walking right by. Hi, how you doing? So right now we are heading. We cut through the delicious smelling kitchen of Shane Confectionaries, and now we're cutting. And now we're walking up the staircase. Now we're walking up the steps to the roof. Okay. Now we're cutting through what looks like their storeroom on the top floor and so, up a ladder. Uh, a box full of honey frames can weigh about 75 pounds. So, you, you can imagine, <laughs> uh, what so the beginning like. of the season and the end of the season are a bit of an ordeal. <laughs> yes, that's, that, is, that is absolutely the case. And as, as heavy as a box full of honey is, a, a box full of bees is, is heavy enough and uh, complicated for other reasons. I imagine, I, yeah. yeah. Something you don't want to drop in the kitchen, yeah? No. Yes. no. <laughs> Logistically, <laughs> it can be a nightmare. Um. Yeah. So now we're going to oh, don okay. some, some bee veils. Okay, so now we're up on the roof, which looks like a pretty typical, I call it a row house roof. So a tar roof with an air conditioning unit going and some flowers. So they got uh, a couple beds and some flower pots and we're looking at what in layman's terms I would call a few beehives. <laughs> That's the same thing I would call them. That's exactly what they, <laughs> in, in, in technical terms too. So the, the point of our research there is to um, characterize the relationships between plants and pollinating insects in Philadelphia and specifically in the different places of Philadelphia because Philly is such a, a complex city that really um, drives home this idea that the, the urban landscape is not some monolithic thing. It's ex extremely complex. Yep. Um, and, and Philly is, is the epitome of that. It's, it's an old city, it's a city of neighborhoods. And what we want to do is uh, sample um, honeybee colonies and wild bee nests throughout the city, identify the plants that are used to, um, by the bees to produce the, the honey and, and pollen that we sample from them, and then try to connect those uh, th those plant pollinator relationships down to the level of land use at each of these sites to see if there are certain characteristic floral communities associated with different land use types. Um, ultimately, with the idea of being able to give concrete recommendations to people, say, trying to decide what kind of street tree to plant or how to repurpose a vacant lot, um, if if as like uh, the Green Philly initiative would suggest, conservation is an explicit management goal yeah. in urban planning in the city, then. Uh, this is a practical endpoint that could be could be aimed at provisioning pollinators, and uh, in, in general, um, managing for for functional plant pollinator relationships in the city. Okay. All right. And so you're. This is how Ken Frank was talking about someone about uh, uh, what is it? Asian elm pollen showing yeah, up. Yeah. So the Chinese elm. Yeah. yeah, this, yeah. That, it was uh, something <laughs> we found last year that was that was quite a shock. And we're, why we're was hoping. that a shock? So what's well, so it was a shock to me because when I, uh, so I've spent a lot of time identifying pollen in various projects. And when I looked at the microscope slides that I, I made from the, the honey samples I collected last fall, I saw something that looked like elm pollen to me. And elm is actually, it's a pretty distinctive looking pollen. So uh, as soon as I saw it, elm was what came to mind, but it was in the fall. And normally you think of the, the big wind pollinated trees like elm being spring blooming trees. Yeah. Um, and Wind pollinated, wind pollinated trees. So, yeah. so in, in both regards, it's un unexpected to see it in the fall. But, but Ken Frank informed me that there was in fact a species of elm around here that blooms in the fall, which is unusual. It's the Chinese elm, uh, Ulmus parviflora. 
Uh, and there's a lot of anecdotal reports about bees foraging on it, though, uh, again, elm is supposedly a wind-pollinated plant, which you, you would, so you would not expect it to be producing nectar. In, it would have in, no motivation to do that. Are they getting the nectar or just the pollen? Well, this is the interesting story. So the, the pollen shows up in the honey, um, and it also shows up in the pollen traps, and you'll see the pollen traps here in a minute. So they are definitely going to it for pollen. However, the fact that it shows up in the honey is peculiar, because normally you'd, you'd associate that with uh, nectar foraging, because pollen incidentally gets incorporated into nectar yeah. while the bees are foraging on it. Um, uh, but uh, again, we like uh, a priori, we, we wouldn't expect Chinese elm to be producing significant amounts of nectar. Now, a we could be wrong. It could be a, a, a tree that does use insect pollination to a significant extent and does produce nectar for that reason. Um, but the alternative hypothesis that I am particularly excited about, and I hope that we were able to find more evidence for it this year, <laughs> is that Time to test um, it. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, Elm trees in general, and urban street trees in particular, are highly susceptible to phloem-feeding insect infestations, so uh, scale insects, aphids, okay. and uh, those insects exude what's called honeydew, which is sugary stuff that comes out the rear end while they're eating, and honeybees will collect that just as happily as they will so floral nectar. These are, so these are aphids or, or such that are, are sucking the scent, I mean, sap kind of out of the trees? Yes, yes. Yeah. it's just like a... It's like aphid pee. Yeah, more more or less. Okay. Um, so we're turning aphid pee into bee vomit. There you go. Yeah, and selling it. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is what we're putting in our, putting in our toast. Yeah. It's a delicious tasting honey. But, but anyway, so it's possible that if there was a big aphid infestation, that the release of pollen would coincide with this aphid infestation. So the pollen would kind of fall into all these sticky aphids exuding their honeydew, and then the bees would come along and collect it. And the honey was a very dark honey, and okay. honeydew honey tends to be dark. So. There's circumstantial evidence supporting this honeydew hypothesis, but I, I won't be convinced. You've got to combine convinced. that honey with that coffee that they get from civet poop. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it is a delicious honey that Don and I sometimes refer to as the coffee porter honey, right? Yes. So it has a little bit of a, a bit of a tannic kind of bitterness to it. it, 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 it but it's not, it, not as not as bad as as as, as a buckwheat. Yeah. Like I, I think the buckwheat is you know is something that you tra traditionally think I of love like you know, honey, yeah. Oh yeah, no, it's like you know <laughs> if you're the kind of guy that's into like pot liquor, like you're you know you're dipping into the gravy at the bottom yeah, yeah, of the yeah. pot and like you know like that's that's the kind of thing that you know you, you like really like. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but um, but it, it's one of the the, the 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 honey here is probably the darkest honey that I've harvested ever. Uh, you know, here meaning Philly or here no, 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 in, in this on this roof. Okay. So we had we had a honey, and I was really only a, able to isolate maybe like twelve pounds of it down okay. to the pure dark. I mean, light went to die in this honey. Like it was, <laughs> it was just like motor oil, and and but it was absolutely delicious. So the the way I'm identifying the source of the honey is I'm taking the honey and diluting it, and then centrifuging it, and that pulls all the suspended pollen out of it into a nice okay. little pellet. And then there are two things that I'm doing. I'm making microscope slides for like a, a quick survey of what's there, but I'm using, uh, my, my main method is DNA barcoding. So I'm extracting ah, DNA, okay. amplifying it, sequencing it. And so if, especially if the microscopy and the barcoding corroborate each other <laughs> on, on this, yeah, yeah. this Chinese elm determination, um, then I'll be very confident that it's Chinese elm pollen. I'm already pretty Here? confident of that. Uh, yes, this is one of the places we found quite oh, okay. a lot of it. Though in general, the center city hives were characterized by this dark honey associated with Chinese elm pollen. Huh. But, and, and you know, and more importantly, it, it actually played into the seemingly health and weight of the colonies. Yeah. So, so check this out. Okay. Um, this under here is not the normal part of the hive. This is a, a, a data logging hive scale. 
Okay, it looks like a little block underneath the hive. Yeah, so it's about the size of a two by four, but it has two load cells on it. It's made by a company called Broodminder. This thing will uh, log weights every hour. And so over the course of the summer, we get thousands of weight readings and we get a very high resolution trace of the weight dynamics of this colony. <laughs> so then what we see, for example, is last year, all of our colonies lost weight in August because apparently that's not a good time for, for flowers in Philly. Okay. Um, but some of the colonies got this kind of little rescue nectar flow in, in September where they started gaining weight again right at yeah. the end. And that was when we saw the Chinese elm pollen and the dark honey associated with the Chinese elm pollen. Ah, uh, okay. And it was specifically those colonies that had the dark honey with the Chinese elm pollen, the, the putative Chinese elm pollen, that yeah. had that weight bump. So we think that that was the, the late season nectar flow that was um, pulling those colonies out of the slump. All right, so right now they're um, loading up the smoker with those like pine straw. Yeah, they did pine needles. And I should mention, throughout there is a what looks to me like a good crowd of bees flying about. So Don is prying the top off of the top box of one of the hives. We're opening it up. And you see inside all the frames. Gives a puff of smoke. Goes out of frame. Recording where there are eggs and... Have you ever seen bee eggs? Not up close. So right, those little white dots down at the bottom of those cells. Of the, which cells? Of the ones that seem to have other stuff in them? Yeah, so so okay. like, so right in like these cells, you'll see like a little, looks like a little grain of rice. Yes, I do, okay, great. All right, that's a bee egg. Thank you. So that's what, you know, when we're going into the colonies, that's what we're looking for. That tells us that the queen's been here within three days. Okay. Okay, because an egg is only an egg for three days. And then it develops, and then they seal it up more. It, it develops into a larva, and then so if we see if we oh, see right. larva, then we know that the queen's been there, you know, um, for you know more than more Longer than, than like, about a week. Yeah. Um, okay. So it, it's it's three, six, and twelve are the are is the timing. So it's three days as an egg, six days as a larva, twelve days as a pupa. Okay. Cool. And does everything sort of get stuck together with wax? No, it gets stuck together with propolis. Propolis. So, say that word again. Uh, propolis. So bees, it's it's bee glue. So bees will okay. go out and they'll collect, in addition to collecting honey and pollen, they'll collect resins from plants okay. to make glue. And this is how they make the, it, it has antibiotic properties. Okay. So this is, um, so if you things. feel it, 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 it almost feels like a Play-Doh and it's not like super sticky. But yeah. if you put that between two pieces of wood, I mean, I'm 6'2", 300 pounds at an ex-offensive lineman. I can lift a hell of a lot, yeah. but I can't pull hives apart. Okay. Because they because they glue them together with this stuff, and it's yeah. it's possible. I mean, you saw me trying just trying to get this lid off. Yeah. Well, that's because they propolised it down. Okay. And they propolised this to the top box. Okay. To the inner cover to the to the top the to the outer cover. Got it. And so, when trying to get that off, I had to break the propolis seal, and that's why we carry around mini pry bars. Yeah. You know, these hive tools are what allow us to get the, the, the boxes apart and the frames apart. Got it. Thank you. When you first get into beekeeping, the first hive you lose is really, it's heartbreak ridge. Yeah. Like, you know, especially when you lose a colony over winter and the bees are frozen in the last ah. jobs that they were doing, you'll see these like two workers that are feeding each other and they'll be doing that 
for eternity. It's like the Pompeii. You know? yeah, like, oh, no, it, 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 it's, yeah. like, it's like losing a pet. Like, yeah. you, get, you get really upset. Like, you know, I remember the, you know, my first year out, and I'm like, you know, I'm a grown man. Like, you know, yeah. getting all misty-eyed. You know, God, with with the, the, with the number of hives we lose, you know, we lose anymore. It's just like you got to you got to distance yourself a little bit. What's your, uh, let's say, annual loss rate for a hive? For us, it's like you know we're we're around forty percent. Like, okay. You know, this year was higher. Um, and you know, and, and that's one because we got. Um, it's got a really we cold really winter. we well, it, it was a bad winter, and we got crushed with. Um, with removal work last season and so it's one of those where it's like a lot of beekeepers will say you know oh you know if you have big losses it's because of mismanagement and it was like you know oh i'd say absolutely like last year we got busy on the removal side and we didn't you know we yeah. didn't keep sharp enough track of our mite counts and we had a higher loss than usual okay but in terms of pennsylvania like we have we have lots of people that are saying that they lost close to 50 percent this year yeah. i don't know exactly what the numbers are but what would you consider a good year's loss rate to be? If it's under 20%, that's awesome. Okay. I mean, 18% is what we're is generally considered sustainable long-term losses. Okay. But so 40% means you have to be importing queens from elsewhere to Queen, no, you got to buy whole hives. Oh, whole hives, I'm sorry. Okay. So so you know, like this like, you know, so I bought you know, I bought uh, over 40 nukes. Okay. Nucleus colonies this spring. To sort of kick us back off again. Okay. And you know, but that's you're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars. So these are hives that are produced elsewhere in the country where they're doing better. Yeah. So, so okay. well, that you can produce bees earlier. Ah. So Georgia, California, um, you know, Florida, and then they get shipped up here, which is part of the problem with the losses because you're getting queens that are genetically more adapted to warmer climes. Presumably you're also moving pathogens around. Oh yeah. Parasites around also. Oh no, if you wanted if you wanted to model how to best spread disease, beekeeping is what you would use yeah. because I mean just the almond crop alone, we're shipping 1.7 million colonies to 850,000 acres of almonds. Yeah. So we're taking 58% of all there's 2.6 million colonies of bees in the United States. So we're taking 58% of one species, putting it in, all in one place, all in one place, <laughs> letting everybody co-mingle, yeah. and then spreading it back out to where, and that's how we ended up with tracheal mites in the 80s. That's how we spread varroa in the 90s, yeah. and that's a big reason why we are where we are. Yeah. So. Um, I'm not happy now. <laughs> yeah, beautiful brood pattern on this, Doug. Um, when you say beautiful brood patterns, I'm so it, it, so you can see this this capped brood here. Yep. This is all pupating bees. Okay. And there's not a lot of holes. Okay. So that's that's a good sign. She's laying she's laying the eggs tight. The eggs are broadly speaking surviving to become mature pupa. Okay. And so the the more you see of that, the better. Okay. All right. The if this had more holes in it, like if it looked like someone took a shotgun to it. Yeah then that would be a bad sign. It means the larva or the eggs are dying somewhere down the line. They're being eaten, they're out. being cannibalized for resources, and yeah. then the queen has to relay eggs there. Okay. And that's a bad sign, because they're putting these resources into producing larvae that are not going to survive, right. and then have to start over. It was a waste, yep, um, but not and so you, here. Right, and you lose a lot of time with that. 
So, I mean, but this is like, that's really nice. You get the sort of horseshoe going. So what we're looking for here is a frame that has um, a lot of uncapped honey or nectar on it. So when bees first collect the nectar, they bring it back um, the way it comes out of the plant, which is, yeah. is fairly watered down. They have to they have to dry it down and they mix it with some um, some enzymes uh, to, to break down uh, the, the sugars. Um, so they, they break down fructose into its uh, glucose, and, or they break down sucrose into its glucose and fructose okay. monomers. Um, Anyway, when it's when it's done, when it's fully dried down, it gets capped with wax. But we don't want to sample capped honey because we don't know when it's from. It could be from last year, for all we know. Okay. But by sampling uncapped honey, we know that it's, so it's fairly recent. Got it. And, and that's what you guys are looking for. Yeah, right so we're collecting on a monthly basis. So I, I want to collect a sample that reflects recent foraging for this period. Okay. So right now, Doug is sort of using a, a, a large plastic test tube to sort of scrape the frame, and I guess to collect the honey that you're going to spin down later. Yeah. Um, Doug, did you get the pollen sample from this one yet? No, I didn't get any of the pollen samples yet. Did anyone um, ever accidentally eat in your samples? Um, well, it's, it's not unusual for us to like stop for a moment and eat some honey. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the pollen traps over yeah. here. Is this okay? The pollen traps are, are essentially forcing the bees through quarter-inch harbor cloth, okay. right? And what that does is that that's just enough space for the bees to squeeze through, and because it's so tight, the bees carry, when they carry the pollen on their on their legs in their pollen baskets, yeah. well, that gets knocked off by the screens, and then we have a trap, a, a box underneath to catch it. it. So we force it, we basically make them go through this maze where they have to get, to get back to their hive, they have to go through this wire, and that tends to knock off most of the pollen on them. And then we collect that in the in the boxes down down underneath. Got it. So and that's just from you know. I'm trying to think of the way to describe the size of those. <clears throat> They're like nerds. They can't. Yeah, that, that's actually that's actually a really apt description. Yep. That's what you should sell at Whole Foods. <laughs> they don't taste like nerds, but they actually do taste okay oftentimes. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, we they arguably any... taste better than nerds. Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> My daughter's a big nerd fan at six, but I, I think I've outgrown that. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's not really my, my forte. All right, do you guys have more to check? We're, no, I think we're, 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 we're done, done here. here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I will just add that even though we're, you know, the emphasis right now at this stop is, is on honeybees, we, the, the picture of urban plant pollinator ecology necessarily involves the, the wild pollinator community. Um, and even though it's, it's a little harder to study, um, we are incorporating it this year. Um, it, it's it's a so it's a complex conversation, kind of balancing the work with honeybees and work with wild pollinators. And, and in some cases, this get, turns into a very polarized discussion about native versus non-native species and agriculture versus conservation. I don't I don't think it needs to be that polarized, but you're anticipating all my polarizing questions. So oh, okay. Good. Yeah. About, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, <laughs> I can I can save some of the discussion for those questions if you'd like. That's fine. But, um, yeah, so I, it is, of course, true that the honeybee is an introduced agricultural species, but that, that doesn't, for, it doesn't for that reason mean that it is not participating ecologically in a system. Right. And, and, and moreover, it doesn't mean that it, it, it doesn't justify itself as, as part of the urban fauna, because I think it justifies itself in many ways, not just ecological, but the fact that we have um, something as beautiful as urban beekeeping on top of a chocolate factory in Old City where we get a chance to, to talk to people about 
plant yeah. pollinator interactions in a way that would, would not be possible. And discover something about the plant community yeah. Of, yeah. of the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. And we have a community of, of beekeepers in the city that uh, the, the community of beekeepers in the city is the most knowledgeable community in the city about plant pollinator interactions. And if it were not for urban beekeeping, you would not have that community of expert knowledge that, that we have uh, as exemplified by, by Don. All right. Thanks, guys. Ready to head down? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Hey, podcast listeners, hope you enjoyed all this great urban bee stuff. Uh, please be in touch if you have any questions, um, comments at herbwildlifecast for Twitter or on Gmail at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com um, or find us on Facebook. Give us some ideas, your thoughts, feedback, etc. And many thanks to Doug Sponfler, Don Shump, Scott McIver, and Tim Hurd for a fabulous bee episode. Looks like striped hyenas got loose out of the zoo in Erie, um, Pennsylvania, when the uh, <laughs> when the, uh, a tree fell down on their enclosure. Oh my God! I've actually been to Erie and I did some good herping there. Well, I hope everyone's okay. The striped hyenas aren't quite as scary as the spotted hyenas, correct? I don't think so, but nothing is. I don't think in the world. <laughs> so either way, so it's a high standard for wildlife. You don't, you might not want loose in Erie. Although, hey, we had that great episode where we looked at um, spotted hyenas in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and they don't seem to bother too many people. No. Um, so here's to coexistence. <laughs>